Caution. Learning in progress. Welcome back to another episode of Smarter Every Season. We are glad to have you back. We are going to continue down our planner maintenance episodes where, again, we got tackled with conversation of do some planner maintenance conversations. So we're on episode six in this kind of mini series, and we wanted to do it a little different than what we normally see and hear in the industry when it comes to planner maintenance conversations. We wanted to try and not get wholly focused on the what and the how we wanted to focus and, and bring the conversation to the why is it so important. So we just left meters and the seed metering and the metering drive systems. And we're going to next move down the row unit to holding the row unit in contact with the ground and then the the depth stop portion of the conversation. So in, in the studio with me today is Tyler Hubert. Say hello. Paul, how's it going? It's wonderful. Excellent. I'm and, doing well. Hey, good. And Hans Stutzman. Hello. So diving into downforce and depth adjustments, those are going to tie together. We're going to p- create that segue later on. Uh, who would like to start off the conversation? I'd love to. Uh, just talking through downforce, um, I think one thing we're going to call out a little bit here is that this is oftentimes something that gets conversational about um, how we set the downforce system. And as Paul kind of alluded to, we're talking about the why of the system. So we're actually not going to go down into a deep dive into how to set it, we're going to focus a little bit on why downforce and the importance of value of saying we got to have a downforce system to hold the rate in the ground to set that depth that we're looking for. And then specifically within this context, we're going to be looking at what can defeat a downforce system, what maintenance items are going to defeat that downforce system. Yeah, I'm glad you talked first, Hans. I kind of look to you to lead because I think the saying is age before beauty. Uh, it's definitely, in this case, it definitely is age <laughs> and not beauty. <laughs> so you teed it up perfectly. The goal here is really talking about what are we trying to achieve with the downforce system and what, what can prevent us from doing that. So the goal with the downforce system is to push the row unit, if you will, into the ground until we get to the point of our depth stop, right? Until our gauge wheels push back against the depth stop and can't move or come up any further. Right. So we commonly call this downforce. There's an element to this that some systems do have the lift capabilities too, right? So on the other side of that, right, we're trying to get to a point where we are at the depth setting, but also we're trying not to cause sidewall compaction. Which is a result of too much weight on the gauge wheels where we're pushing too hard at this point. Yeah, exactly right. So... As you kind of said, too, then what are the mechanical pieces of the maintenance pieces that we have to watch out for or that can defeat that? Let me interject there and say, let's cover, because you touched on it there, the, the risks of doing it right and doing it wrong. Before we get into what's going to defeat a downforce system or force it into the wrong category, what is the value of doing it correct? Let's, let's first cover what's the value that we're trying to safeguard or why we're doing the maintenance there. What's my, what's my dollar value, my agronomic gain? Yeah, I think basically what you're trying to do with the downforce system is there's a, obviously we're trying to get to the depth that we have set, correct? And what we're trying to do is also have enough weight above zero, right? Weight above the split second that uh, we do actually have the gauge wheel arms contacting the get depth stop. Some amount of weight above that to form a sidewall that actually stands up. If we cannot do that... but Right, we've talked about we don't want to overdo it. Right, that's that's compaction, that's sidewall compaction. We want our 
furrow walls to be able to stand up until the closing system can come along and knead the furrow shut. So, are, there's, so there's a Goldilocks target, right? Not too hot, not too cold, yeah. not too hard, not too soft. There's a Goldilocks target in there. What's the value of being Goldilocks versus the, the cold pudding? Yeah, so I think it's it's basically about not allowing then dry dirt or soil to fall in to the seed trench, right? We have talked about seed to soil contacts and the important of that importance of that when we covered Keaton's a few episodes back, but we want that even or uniform bake is kind of the way that I had had talked about it. So we want uniform or moist soil on all sides of the seed trench, and if we can't get that seed trench to hold up, that's our risk is a caving in of the furrow walls. That's great. That's that's that's. Perfect on the on the why, the agronomic why behind what causes. Well, you want that. a number. I do want a number. Okay, do you know the number? That's from. Check me if I'm wrong here, but Bex. Bex PFR is is I think it's like six six to nine bushel, depending on what the downforce system or the original downforce system is. Um, so, so to be clear, then on that, from what to what is the six to nine bushel cost? So it's a gain over an automatic downforce control system that reacts to and always maintains ideal downforce on a row unit compared to a single setting, even the optimal single setting in a field, you're going to get at best or at worst six bushel advantage over in that scenario. So doing it right for the reasons you exactly talked about, creating a good sidewall, always making sure we're held against those depth stops. Those are the, those are the root causes but that value of making sure the seed is placed where we want it and, when, and it's not constricted in a tight soil area, that has a value of at minimum six and as high, high as 12 to 17 or whatever, however off your non-responsive or non-ideal downforce system was. So there's, there's significant value to doing it right or being optimized on it. I think this might sound a little bit funny, but I think your ultimate return or the, the, benefit of doing it right varies based on how poorly you've done it until you get it right. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the problem there, Tyler, you're, it's a great point, though, because generally we don't know how poorly we're doing it. Yeah, that's true. And, and that's the, the problem is that I can't actually get it set correctly, so there's a good chance I've done it poorly. And some years I've done it poorly really bad, like really bad. And that's going to be a – could be 20 to 30 bushel advantage hit versus having done it correctly. So that's that's some some harder numbers on and the why behind or what where where the root value is created behind doing downforce right. But your comment you made, Hans, starting off was we do the maintenance ahead of time to forestall something that would defeat. How did you we don't want, don't want to uh, what basically what maintenance the items can we do ahead of time to prevent from defeating our downforce system? Gotcha. And so we we don't want to. No matter what system we're setting up, if we can set it correctly, but if we have a maintenance issue on the system, it's not going to help us whether we've set it correctly or not. We're still going to be doing it wrong, and so we're still subject to that six to ten bushel disadvantage, even though we've done the technology and the and the correct setting to go with it. And when I look at it, one of the first things that I think we talk, actually talked about this some um, in previous the first, one of the first planter maintenance ones we talked about was that was the parallel arms and the row unit wear. Those are two key pieces that greatly affect the downforce ability to hold the row unit where it's supposed to be. How so? Well, we talked about some, um, but when your bushings are worn or parallel arms are worn and, and 
they're starting to create slop. You can actually get wear in your downforce bushings as well, or whatever's pushing on the parallel arms down. And when that's got loose, if that's sloppy or loose, you or you're encountering ground conditions. The amount of force that you're pushing down can all of a sudden be less than what the ground conditions can apply, and all of a sudden you're getting this chatter because the downforce system can't keep consistent pressure on it because there's slop in there, so it, it bounces back and forth between applying pressure to not applying pressure on your downforce system. I'll tack onto that and say, too, we also have covered bar height and levelness. If the bar is set so that my parallel arms are running uphill, and again, we have we have touched on this in a previous episode, but I think it's worth reiterating, when my parallel arms are running uphill to my planer bar, I am closer to engaging my depth stop. So as I get to any part in my field where the planer bar would rise and my row units are delayed in that, I am at a significant risk of contacting my depth stop. And when that happens, I'm not at my planning depth. Yep. And then now you've you've limited the downforce ability and now you've also affected depth, which was the whole goal of the downforce system was to set help set the depth or keep maintain depth. Yeah. Okay, so the, the desire is to be able to hold the real unit in the ground. How are we how are we affecting that? How are we creating that hold it to the ground force? The first primary ways we've had has been springs, a spring system. And there's a variety of springs out there in the market. There's there's several different ways that guys have put them on there. But the the whole principle behind those is to take weight from the bar and transfer it to the the row unit pushing down on them. So that's probably the the first thing is to start checking on, on a lot of these systems is what What's the condition of the springs? So I think that would be a fair statement on any of the downforce systems that we are pushing down on the real units. The amount that we're pushing down is backstop or held by the bar. The bar. And so we, we need to make sure we have ballast, not enough ballast or, or back held, you know, force to push against, strong enough wall to push against. That's first and foremost. And then if we're in, you said springs, are there other major types that are out there? I can think of pneumatics. And hydraulics. I think those are the three major categories, right? You've got mechanical or spring, pneumatic, and hydraulic. There, So pneumatic has two different types. There is a, an air cylinder design. I think there's one company that's making an air cylinder design. Um, yeah, I know, of, I know of a couple of planters out of the factory that had some air, air cylinders. cylinders forces on it. I, but everything else that I'm aware of is a spring, airbag, air, air cylinder, or a hydraulic cylinder of some kind. So we're talking about three different means of creating that force which would have three largely different root causes to potential failure. But our focus is on pull those apart, each one, and make sure that we do have good, consistent, stable access to force, right? Okay, so since we have a little bit of time here, let's dive into each one individually and go, what about springs, mechanical springs? Can the guys, what are common pitfalls or experiences that lead towards that loss of downforce? I think one of the first things that obviously a broken spring is hard to is hard to apply force on. But what what I've seen happen several times is you actually have a broken spring that you can't actually see where the, the crack is. And the nature of the spring is kind of still held together, and you actually a lot of times you'll have two or three springs kind of all bundled together in one spot, and you actually can't see that one of them of the three is broken, and you've effectively decreased the force on that one row by a fourth of the springs because there's four springs on there. Or then just the other side is just them getting stretched. They get rusty. They, they've been on that in a locked position for a long time. And just the actual, the, the tensile strength starts to degrade of that, of that metal spring. It gets sprung. 
It's sprung. <laughs> I'm the spring a, has sprung. I'm thinking of a very, very <laughs> my mental image is of a very dipped box spring mattress where there's like, oh yeah, that's where I, that's where that's where the sleeping happens every night. That's bowed indentation. Your indentation, spot, yes. your spots in the mattress. You're saying springs change over time. Yeah. So I think that's a big piece of it, and I think there's there's some wear aspects and what I've seen some guys, and this is not setting it, but making sure they're free to be set. Is the other thing about springs because I've seen numerous guys look at it and it's like, yeah, I'm going to have to kind of beat around that spring to get it loose so I can actually set it to the proper spring tension that I want it to be. So checking that aspect of it, make sure that they're adjustable still on your spring setting. Next system's up. I'm going to go to Tyler for full of hot air. Ooh. Pneumatic, I'm sorry. Pneumatic. That was, the, <laughs> that was almost below the belt. I'm going to ignore that and take the higher ground and go right into what Paul asked me about and talk about pneumatic systems. Uh, so you guys kind of alluded to cylinder-type systems. The other one would be like an airbag. I mean, the obvious ones there are we are checking for is there any leak in the bag, right? Any kind of bag wear, anything that's been rubbing up against the bag, things I mean, of that nature. Yeah, and one thing I'd call out there is that it's kind of like the tire. You look for cords or you look for threads. You yeah. look for that type of nature within the rubber because it is a rubber bag that's reinforced to look for those types of things, or um, even the seal. They're all spring-clamped, steel-banded on the clamps on the, on the airbag, so look for anything that might be on that center where they've been overstretched or about to pop off on that. So where you can see on the... Explain what you're looking for visually on the hose clamp. So looking for anything that might be where the clamp is either stretched or starting to slide off the end of the bag or has a nick to it. You can look for kind of that area. I mean, when a bag often fails... It'll either split down the side of it and completely rupture on the side, or it'll be cut, or that ring clamp on the end of it will pop off and the base will will pop loose of the, the end of the bag. So to even keep working our way back, obviously, talking about air systems, so there has to be some sort of air delivery. So it's worth checking and looking over to make sure that no lines or delivery system to the bag is pinched and that that is intact. Let's even go back as far as air compressors, right? We have to have a compressor to deliver the air. What can we look for for an air compressor to make sure that it's healthy? Uh, one is kind of your build time. Um, run the compressor in the spring and see how long it takes to keep up air. If it's having a tough time building air, if it takes a really long time to build air pressure, um, then you're looking for wear within the compressor head or supply pressure, whether that's a hydraulic scenario or whether that's an electronic 12-volt power to it. Those are kind of the two things to kind of keep track of to what to look for within the compressor as far as what could cause a slow build rate within your compressor. Perfect. Anything else on pneumatic systems that we need to keep an eye out on that, that could potentially rob us of that force? I'll just mention it. Um, if you're jumping on a system this year and you've added something to it, make sure that your compressor can handle whatever new devices you've added to it and also your your downforce control system. And I guess I would just add, too, most of the time, anytime I've been on a pneumatic system, it's not really hot air maybe ambient. So I think that kind of pokes a hole in your little burn earlier, Paul. But you know what? Nevertheless, I said I was going to take the high road. And so I think we're going to move into hydraulic systems. Beautiful. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> and here you really do want to be concerned about hot in a hydraulic system. That's a good point. Bad things are where the hot is. Right. If things are hot in a hydraulic system, you've got a problem. Why? So well, now you're asking a hydraulic theory at this point. That's a, that's a loaded question, Paul. That, that might take us a long time to finish it. I'll, I'll, I'll say it short. I'll say it short. Anytime you have hydraulic pressure or have a hot hydraulic system, that indicates that you have something that's going over a high-pressure scenario to a low-pressure that's not actually functioning or doing any type of actual work. It's not moving a hydraulic cylinder. It's not spinning a motor. That is a waste, a waste of hydraulic energy 
basically, and it'll express itself as heat. So that generally indicates that you've got a blocked return or you've got something along those lines that's going to generate. Some form of large resistance. Yep, some form of large resistance that's taking a lot of heat to generate to get past whatever that is. Yep. So. That's a good way of putting it. So, yeah, like you alluded to, supply pressure becomes very important. A blocked return yep. could cause what you're talking about. But, you know, for a number of hydraulic systems, what I'm getting at with my supply comment is a lot of them are are dependent on a certain supply pressure, right? They're more of a pressure-based system a lot of times than they are necessarily a flow-based flow system. Yep. So I guess I'm, I'm making that comment just to say healthy supply pressure and being able to obtain that target a lot of times is very very important. Yep. And and we mentioned a little bit, you mentioned the return side or, or restriction. Return is actually very important because your your hydraulic system operates between the differential between your supply pressure and your return pressure. If you have a thousand PSI return pressure, you've effectively reduced your supply pressure by a thousand. That's what your, your working pressure is at that point. So return pressure is a very key part of that. And I think where this is coming from is you know, the original question was around what defeats our what defeats the system, our system, right? And so that's kind of where the comments to are coming from supply is, can the tractor supply, is it capable of supplying what we need, period? Because if it's, if it's running out, if hydraulic flow is deflected to many other components, or the tractor just doesn't have that capability to begin with, we're going to get defeated right out of the gate. Yep. You've, you top the, you've pulled the top end off of it right away. And yeah. so there's not even potential for it. Yeah. So from an obvious standpoint, we can also have leaks in a hydraulic system. Obviously, this is a hydraulic oil leak rather than an air leak. Uh, but the other piece of this, too, is most any hydraulic system that I'm familiar with has some sort of a filter. Whether that's a tractor filter or external filter on the machine itself, correct? Correct. Yep. I agree. And that's uh, and you're referencing replacing the filter or servicing the filter as needed or on a timely periodic table. Yep. Filter cleanliness. Yep. And with that, I'll also point back a little bit to the Air Force system as well, because it also has a air filter as well. And water if that separator. is water separator as well. So two air filters, there's the particulate filter and the water separator on the compressors. Most of those compressors have some version of that. And that's also necessary to maintain that to, to supply good good build rate within the compressor itself. And I'm going to pull this back to the, to the theoretical why again on how this is so important that we're talking about those supply sources for those. So when we're talking about the force that we're needing to hold that row unit down, that is very simple. In a pneumatic or a hydraulic system, that is the pressure times the area that it's applied over, right? Yep. So in a hydraulic cylinder, that's a one-inch cylinder. If I have 2,000 PSI, that's my applied force, yes. right? That's, that's, it's just pressure, to equal, uh, pressure times area equals force. Right, so very straightforward. We would need to make sure we have that available supply, just like Tyler Soul said, at that pressure because it's a pressure differential. I need to create a difference over a static, which is commanded pressure, and then I get my force. Yep. Cool. So let's segue. Hans, I know you touched base or, or commented on this in the pre-show of how we chose to include our depth adjustment into this conversation as well. Yeah, I think... Um as we talked about this and we were, we were talking about depth a lot of, a lot of that, one of the things that I, I've ran across a lot is that inconsistent depth has been very, is very commonly blamed on a downforce system or downforce issues. And I don't, that's not always the case. There's a lot of occurrences where the depth, inconsistent depth is actually a function of the depth system itself or inconsistencies within the depth system. So and that's, that's why we, that's why we link them in together because there are two pieces going into it, but depth system you already go ahead well the, yeah the other part of that is the other obvious pieces when we're talking about like tyler said we're pushing down on that row unit we're going to continue to push down on that row unit until we hit our depth stop 
So that being in a good maintained state is very important that we, because that's our, that's our backstop. That's our, that's our end point. Uh, so we need to make sure that's clean and healthy and that they're all uniform and checked. Yep. Uniform and checked is a good piece of it because you can, you can deal with some inconsistencies if you know how to, where that inconsistency is and you can set it correctly, accommodate for it. But checking for the inconsistency is a big piece of it and knowing what's there. And I think that this is, this is a conversation where there's a lot of different directions that we could take with this around how do we check depth row to row? I've heard this done a couple of different ways. And we can cover some of those ways here. I think it's worth it to explain. We, we understand the why. Let's do go ahead and explain how you do a couple different means of validating or getting those correct because we know we, we need it. Yeah, and I'll, I'll, to the point I was trying to make earlier, well, I'm just saying that, that we could go over a couple of these and there may be somebody out there listening that says, well, I've always done it this way. Yeah, your way probably works. There's a few different ways that we've shown it done. I think even at Winter Conference this year, Jeremy Hodel showed it done a certain way. I know we've done some planner maintenance videos that have showed ways to do it. The goal is basically that you're setting your planner depth at a known depth. Your depth adjustment handle. You're correlating a depth adjustment handle to a known depth. Thank you. Yes, that's the better way to say it, Paul. Yeah. So, and so one of the ways that we've done that and we're going into it is, is to set it down on something that you've, your two by fours, which is your inch and a half depth, and then setting your T handle to accommodate for that or set it on a two by four, on a four by four block and then slide something underneath it to where you know what the depth adjustment is as far as that goes. But you, you are about to say something as well, I think. I was just going to tie it back to and say the whole reason this is important and the why that we want to focus on is as you're digging behind your planter and evaluating how that seed's being placed in the soil. We're choosing a depth to place that seed very intentionally so that it has good access to temperature and moisture so it germinates uniformly across the entire planter. Well, if I'm digging behind row five and it is slightly deeper than all of the rest of the rows, I may think I'm doing a good job putting the seed in moisture and all of the rows are too shallow. So being uniform and consistent across the planter taking out or, or removing the mechanical variation as much as possible by doing these calibrations ahead of time, correlating my depth stop adjustment to an achieved seeding depth is very important. Yeah, 100%. agree. And then um, and we talked a little bit about depth stop in one of the earlier um, episodes as well on planner maintenance, but that maintenance and removing all those pieces that, that could potentially cause problems. And your variation from row to row not only do you think you're doing a really good job on one row, but now if you have that variation side from row to row, not every seed is experiencing the same environment. Yeah. And it all goes back to that. The, the, your, when you think about your depth stop and your, your downforce, it's all going back to your furrow creation health. How good of a furrow are you creating? What's the economic impact of all of these pieces combined? And can I get that furrow to be created in the way that I have every seed set up for success? Excellent. Is there anything else that I missed in there or that we have missed that we need to cover back or want to touch again? I think it's good. Yeah, I mean, I think a, a, the whole conversation here kind of goes back to, like Hans alluded to, furrow creation. Like you had kind of said, there's depth issues that tend to get blamed on the downforce system sometimes, right? And we wanted to make the note here about checking depth, but it could also be a seed tube guard that caused it. Yep right? It could also be a row cleaner bearing that caused a problem, right? So all of this really comes back to just, you know, I guess kind of coming full circle to there's a number of different things in the, in, from a mechanical or a maintenance standpoint that can affect 
furrow creation, which is kind of the the crux of the whole you know series that we're in. So it's it's not to say that if there is always a problem with downforce, that it's something to do with the way depth was set. We have to think of that whole row unit holistically. It's just this is a common thing a common that thing. we see. We, yep, we see get blamed. Cool. Well, I believe that will uh, wrap up our commentary on downforce and depth adjustments for this conversation around planner maintenance. Those are definitely subjects that we can dive back into and have a lot of fun maybe going into the how to set them or best practices. That's a topic for another conversation. When we return back next time, I believe we're going to dive into the last thing on the real unit that touches the, the planting operation, that's going to be our closing system. So we're fairly excited to get into that. Join us back again. And if you haven't yet, please take the opportunity to hit subscribe or give us some feedback on your podcast hosting service, where you're always welcome to pass along ideas or feedback to us at smartereveryseason at precisionplanning.com. Thanks. We'll see you next time.